the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, Mitch Albon, has written books that have made a difference in the lives of millions around the world. Mitch is an internationally renowned and best-selling author, screenwriter, broadcaster, and musician. His books, which include Tuesdays with Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and For One More Day, have collectively sold more than 40 million copies worldwide. Mitch's work has been made into Emmy Award-winning and critically acclaimed television movies. His new book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Welcome, Mitch. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. So, Mitch, I am so happy to have you on the show because your work has made an impact on my life, as it has for millions around the world. So how does a sports journalist end up writing such heartwarming, thought-provoking books? Uh, well, it was a journey. Uh, let's put it that way. I, I, I didn't always uh, delve in subjects or, or write about. These are, quite frankly, wasn't the kind of person who even thought about these type of topics. I was a sports writer uh, for the first you know, 15 years of my career, uh, and a very ambitious one at that. Uh, I was in, writing for newspapers. I was on ESPN television. I did radio. I worked about 90 hours a week. Go, go, go. And then when I was 37 years old, I happened to be flipping through the TV channels and caught the Nightline program. And did a double take because there on the screen was a thin, sickly, white-haired version of an old professor of mine who I had had in college, who I been very close to, but hadn't seen in 16 years because I was so busy pursuing my career and my ambition. And then I found out through this program that this professor, whose name was Maury Schwartz, was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I only found that out because I happened to catch him on this TV program. And I felt rather guilty about it. I called them up thinking I would just make one phone call and that would be the end of it. Uh, I had a kind of a, a very sweet conversation with him on the phone. At the end, he asked if I would come visit him. So I said, well, I'll just come visit him, but that'll be one time. And then I'll be done with it. And the visit was so impressive uh, and made such an impression on me that I began to go back again and again and again, and I ended up going every Tuesday that he had left, and I sort of had a last class in what's important in life once you really know you're going to die, which Maury did. And it turned out that everything that he felt was important were things that I was not valuing in my own life. And so from that point forward, I began to turn some things around. I wrote a little book called Tuesdays with Maury just to pay for his medical bills. I was going to go back to being a sports writer and all that, uh, hopefully with a little better knowledge. And then this book, Tuesdays with Maury, became something I never could have imagined and sort of turned my whole life around. Tuesdays with Maury was my introduction to your work. It was a couple of years after it came out. And my dad had just passed away. And that was when I found the book. And the lessons that were part of that were, were really important to me in the healing of that loss. Can you tell us a little bit about Maury and, and what were some of the biggest things that he taught you? Well, there were so many, uh, including death and to life, but not a relationship. Meaning that <clears throat> if you 
had a good relationship with someone while they were alive, they can live on in your in your heart and your head, you know, and all the things that you share. But only if you spent that time together while you were alive. And that was a really important thing for me. A lot of people think that, you know, they'll just get to the end and suddenly when they realize they're going to die, that in like the last three days, they'll make up for all the time they didn't spend with their loved ones. It doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Another really critical one was giving is living, which is something that I have tried to um, incorporate into my my life. I, I had noticed that many people would come to Maury trying to cheer him up because he was dying and they thought it was their obligation. But after about an hour with him, you know, they'd come out of the room crying about their divorce or their love life or their work. Or, and they'd say, I went to try to cheer him up, but he ended up asking me all these questions and I ended up crying and he ended up cheering me up. And, you know, I, I don't know why, but uh, he gave me more than I gave him. And I asked Maury once, why are you doing this? You're the one who's dying. You know, why don't you take the sympathy? And he said, Mitch, taking like that just makes me feel like I'm dying giving makes me feel like I'm living. And that was a profound lesson for me because I realized if this man who's really realizes he's, he's you know, got weeks left on this earth and what makes him feel the most alive is giving to other people, then that has to be true for us now, you know, in our younger and healthier years. And I, I started my first charity that year and I have been, you know, kind of deeper and deeper and deeper into that world ever since. Do you remember Maury to be this type of person, or did he change when he got his prognosis? No, he was he was like that, even as a professor. Um, it was one of the reasons I loved him. You know, I took every class that he offered. All the kids loved him like that. He, I mean, I think it was more profound, and I don't think he thought so much about death, uh, but he was always kind, and he would always say things like, you don't have to buy the culture if you don't like it. I mean, it's okay to be different. And uh, he, he was he was known for uh, once he went to a basketball game when he was a professor at our college and everybody was cheering. We're number one. We're number one. He popped up and he said, what's the matter with being number two? Like he was just that kind of, uh, you know, counter sort of thinker. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was brought to the fore more by his imminent death. But, no, he, he didn't he didn't have some gallows transformation. He, he, he was always a, a kind and, and caring and loving individual. So you had a career as a sports writer, and then you went down this journey with Maury, and, and it changed so much of your life. Did you think you would go back to sports then? Or, you know, what kept you on this path for the types of work that you went on to write that had such an impact on so many of us? Well, to be honest, Joan, it was, it was the reaction from people, first in my community and then around the country and then around the world, I, when I was a sports writer, and I was, you know, pretty well-known sports writer, and uh, I was on television, as I mentioned, and so people would recognize me, and they would often stop me in the airport as I was walking by, and they'd say, hey, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I would just keep walking and say, you know, the Patriots, and that was it. That's all they wanted out of me. And then after two days with Maury, it started to become this book that nobody could have figured. I mean, they only printed 20,000 copies of that book. You know, it's now sold over 20 million copies, uh, but, but, you know, nobody anticipated that as it began to grow, people would stop me in those same airports. But instead of saying who won the Super Bowl, they'd say, Hey, uh, my mother died of cancer. And the last thing we did was read your book together. Can I talk to you about her? And, you know, you can't say Patriots and just keep walking. You, you have to stop right. and engage. And I began to stop and engage and stop and engage and stop and engage dozens of times a day. And if I went out to a book signing or something like that, hundreds of times a day with people's stories about grief and sadness and love and, and relationships and people who were there, Maury's, and they would open their wallets and take out pictures and say, this was my Maury. And, and I don't know, just that part of the world and what really mattered in life began to overwhelm me, you know, and, and envelop me really much more than sports. And when it came time to write another book, I had no interest in writing anything about sports. I, I wanted to write about those topics, and I wrote a novel uh, just to be different because I knew I couldn't write anything like Two Days with Maury, whatever I did in nonfiction, whatever it was going to be, with pale in comparison, it was six years later. So I tried this little novel called The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and it found a, you know just as big an audience uh, as Two Days with Maury, and that began my, my life as a novelist. You know, and I, th I think the thing is there, there are so many people – that are going through things, particularly today, 
with, um, you know, what we've just gone through with COVID and the pandemic. And there's so much grief and so much pain. And and what you write about gives all of us hope. And so how does it feel for you, uh, feel to you when someone comes up to you and tells you that you help them get through what may be the worst experience of their life? Well, I'm, I'm very gratified. I, obviously, you know, anybody would be, but, but I, I try not to take the credit for that. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I always say I, I'm not the person with all the answers. And sometimes people who would read Tuesdays with Maury, they would come up to me after a book signing or a speech and they would say, Maury, can I ask you a question? And I would always say, I'm Mitch, someone, you know, I was right. the one who didn't, have, you know, I asked all the questions. I didn't have the answers. And I'm still the dumb one. You know, I'm still asking the questions. I just ask the questions in the book and I, in the books that I write. And even this new one, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, which has, has found such a big audience in such a short period of time. And I've been wondering myself why that is. And I think you tapped into it when you said, you know, the way that we're coming out of this pandemic with so many questions and looking for hope. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, I guess I wrote it, you know, during that pandemic and I wrote it out of the aftermath of losing a child. And, and I was looking for hope and some healing too. And, and so a lot of the things that I go through, I just try to put the same kind of questions that I'm asking in the book and uh, whatever book I'm working on and pose them. And in this case, I put them in the mouth of some people who are, who are stuck on a, a life raft and uh, they're asking them of a very unusual person. But um, I ask the same questions that I think other people ask and then just try to answer them in the way that smart people in my life have taught me or experience in my life has taught me and people seem to gravitate to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat? Sure. So it begins, uh, it's probably the biggest sort of thriller book that I've ever written, an adventure thriller book. And, and it's odd because uh, people don't think of me that way, but wrapped inside of it is a very unique tale. It's, it's, it's about this luxury yacht that is owned by one of the richest people in the world. And he throws this big soiree on it with all these famous celebrities and influencers and business people. And, and uh, it's out in the middle of the ocean. It explodes mysteriously. And everybody's killed except 10 people who managed to get to a life raft, five of whom are rich guests on the, from the boat and five of whom are just workers from the boat. And they're in this life raft for three days. Nobody is coming looking for them. They're running out of food and water. They see sharks. They're, you know, crying out for help, they're, they're lost and they're desperate. And all of a sudden they see on the third day, they see this body floating in the water and they pull it into the boat. And it's this young guy, very nondescript, average looking guy, and he's alive. And they start peppering him with all kinds of questions. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't speak. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord you found me. And he says, I am the Lord. And that begins this sort of uh, tale of what happens to these 10 castaways in this life raft who do not think that this guy is the Lord because he doesn't look like it. He's skinny and he gets hungry really fast and he's thirsty and he falls asleep a lot. And yet as the days pass, things start happening. And, you know, they said, what are you doing here if you're God? And he says, well, haven't you been calling me? I came because you called me. And they say, oh, so right, so you're going to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everybody in the boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And, of course, that doesn't happen very often. Ten people don't agree on anything, you know, in this world. And yet as they get more desperate, uh, we see that some of them start to turn in that direction. And really, John, it's a, it's a book about help. And when we cry out for help, and I've cried out for help in the last few years, especially after losing our little girl you know, who died from a brain tumor. And, um, other people have been crying out for help during COVID, you know, uh, please don't let me get the disease. Don't let my loved ones get the disease. Help this person is in the hospital. Don't let me lose my job, whatever the case may be. And I got to thinking that, you know, when it comes to asking for help, we always want our help the way we want, like a sandwich in a deli. You know, we order it and we expect it to come out quickly and look like, what we ordered and when it doesn't come right on time or it doesn't isn't what we look like we think well i'm being ignored god's ignoring me the world is ignoring me the universe isn't answering my prayers but yet five years ten years down the road we look back on that moment and we say well you know what i remember thinking how bad that was for me but if that didn't happen then this wouldn't happen and then i wouldn't have met this person we wouldn't have gotten married we're not kids so i guess when i look back on it maybe that was the best thing that could have happened to me well 
if it's the best thing that could have happened to you 10 years from now, it may well be the best thing that could happen to you right now. It's just that we don't accept that because, you know, we want our help the way we want it, when we want it, what we think it should be. And so here's this character who's saying, I'm the Lord, I'll help you. Uh, I'll get you out of this thing. All you got to do is believe that I'm what I'm saying and nobody wants to believe him. And I'm not saying he is or isn't God. You're going to have to read the book to figure that out. There's more to it than, than that. But, but it's that whole question of what do we do when we cry out for help if, if, it, if it comes but doesn't look like what we expected. I, over the past 10 years, have gone through so much loss in my life, and that's really the result of the work I'm doing now. This is why I do what I do. And one of the things I've learned is that everything does happen for a reason or for a, a a greater purpose. And and it's not easy when you're in the throes of grief to understand that. But when you look back, you really can see that there are blessings and gifts in every situation, but they're not easy to see. You Mm. have to look for them, but they are there. And and I think that the book that you just described, there really couldn't have been a better time to put this book out. You're right about what you just said. I mean, right on the money. And it's also the angle from which we look back you know there's different ways to look back and there's a moment in in this in this book where uh one of the passengers confronts this god character with the ultimate question which of course is you know why do people die and in his case he lost his wife uh and he's he's crying and he says why did you take my wife why did she have to die why did you take her and this god character says well why do people always ask, why did God take somebody when they die? Maybe a better question is, why did God give them to us? Why did we have them for all that time? What did we do to deserve their love or their sweetness or their memory? Didn't you have moments like that with your wife? And he says, every day. And the God character says, well, those moments are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. I know that you cry for people when they leave this earth. People always do, but I can assure you, they're not crying. And, you know, I, I wrote that as honestly as much for me and, and how I have to deal with the loss of our, 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 our little adopted girl as much as for the readers, but it's universal. And as I say, it's how you choose to look back on it. If you choose to look back on what you lost, you're going to feel always hankering and yearning for what you lost. If you look back on the, what, as what you were given, and what an amazing time that you were granted to have with that person, then you're always going to feel gratitude, even if it's short. And I've had to learn how to do that with, you know, a seven-year-old who, who passed away. And you say, that's just too early. That's not enough time. What kind of God takes a child at seven? But then you realize that there are people in the world who have their children for three months. There are people who have their children for a week. There are people who have their children for 20 minutes in a hospital. And, and and by that comparison, seven years is an eternity. So it all depends on the way you choose to look back. And if you look back in gratitude, it doesn't hurt as much. And I think that's what the stranger in the light boat, you know, it's one of the lessons that happens in this in this light boat out in the middle of the ocean that, that this character learns. Mitch, earlier we touched upon a lesson that you had learned from Maury that giving is living. And you do a lot of charitable work. Can you just tell us briefly about some of your charities and how our listeners can get involved and help? Well, sure. Um, I mean, that's kind of you to ask. I, I, as I said, in 1995, I started my first charity here in Detroit, and uh, it's grown into something that's quite large now. It's an organization called Save Detroit, and we have nine different charitable operations that include uh, daycare uh, operations for children of, of women who are in transition, or transitional housing, or going through rehab, or whatever, or trying to get jobs, and don't have anybody to watch their children, from kids as young as five days old all the way up to two and a half years. We have uh, the nation's first medical clinic for homeless children and their mothers. Uh, we have an after-school center that has 300 kids in it uh, uh, with uh, computer programming and recreational things and all like that. We have... Uh, uh, Working Homes, Working Families program where we rehab houses and then uh, we give them to families that are working. And if they keep the house up nice and make the taxes and utility payments after two years, we give them the keys uh, and they own the house. And many programs like that here in Detroit. 
And then I operate an orphanage in Haiti that I'm at every month for 12 years that I've been there every single month. And we have 53 children that we raise there. Haiti, as you probably know, is terribly, terribly difficult place, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and the second poorest in the world. And right now going through some terrible violence and gangs and kids there just don't have a chance, especially orphan kids. And we have 53 of the most amazing kids that we not only nurture and feed and take care of medically and all that, but we have a school and they go to school four hours in English, four hours in French every day. And they're on track to graduate to go to college. And, and every one of them has a college scholarship lined up here in America. Four of them are already here. Uh, come next summer, we'll have 10 here. And uh, their goal is to you know get educated here, but then go back to Haiti, work at the orphanage for two years to give back, and then go into Haitian society and make their country a better place. And I have to tell you that the time that I spend in Haiti every month, the, you know, I sleep right there at the orphanage and my bed's right in with the kids. And, and you know, it's a four inch mattress on a, on a piece of wood with, with pillows that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't hold up a mouse, but I sleep better there than, than uh, anywhere in the world, including here, even at home in Michigan, because I guess I know that I'm doing something important and I feel needed and, I highly recommend that for anybody who's looking for contentment in their life, just find somebody who needs your help and you'll be, you'll be amazed at how good you feel about your days. And our listeners can learn more about these charities on your website, MitchAlbom.com. Yep. And uh, the uh, orphanage is HaveFaithHaiti.org, HaveFaithHaiti.org, and the uh, Detroit charities are SayDetroit.org. The book is The Stranger in the Lifeboat. If you'd like to learn more about Mitch and his work, once again, you can visit MitchAlbom.com. And Mitch, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Oh, well, you said something about hope a little earlier, and um, I think that that's really important. I think uh, there was once a book critic who was trying to take a you know jab at me um, dismissing my work and said, uh, he's the king of hope. And I smiled at that and said, if that's a pejorative, if that's a bad thing, I'm all for it. You know, you can, you can insult me that way anytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think we, we live in a, in a country where too often we just feel the anger and vitriol and, 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 uh, being louder than the next guy is, is all the matters and the kindness and, Things like that are out of fashion and, uh, and, 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 and stupid. And that's not the case. And the, if, if you don't wake up every day with a, a good helping of hope, um, this is a difficult world to navigate. But if you, if you have that gratitude, like I was talking about before, if you, uh, if you believe in something, you know, I, I, I called the, this book The Stranger in the Lifeboat for a reason because I feel that we're all kind of in a lifeboat in this world. You know, we have a lot of bumpy waves. There's the occasional shark. There's many storms. We're all trying to navigate our way through. That's the lifeboat part. The stranger part is your belief system. If you don't believe in anything, if you have no hope, then you're alone in that boat. And uh, that other force in that boat is always going to be a stranger to you. And you're not going to know it, embrace it, deal with it. But if you believe in something, whether it's God or humanity or the universe or just a sense of hopefulness for the human race, then that stranger ceases to be a stranger and it becomes your belief system. It becomes what you lean on and what you embrace and what you hold on to in the dark stormy night, you know, and and you're not alone in that lifeboat. And so I would just hope that nobody feels uh, hopeless uh, because there's nothing sadder than that. And, and, and if you have hope, then you always have a companion, and things can always improve and get better. And, uh, you know, that would be my wish to not only come out of this conversation, but, but for the world. And that's what I try to do in my books and, and you know, try to leave people with that message when they turn the last page. Mitch, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. I'm so happy that you have joined us on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Joan. Thanks for having me on. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. What are the acoustic qualities of the sounds in your environment? How does it affect you? And how can you mitigate the impact of unpleasant noise? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for stress reduction through relaxation and meditation with sound and music. The soundscape is the immersive world of sound that defines the sonic features in your environment. One of the reasons being in nature is relaxing is because the characteristics of the soundscape. Close your eyes and imagine leaves rustling in the wind, birdsong in the morning, the silence that accompanies the heat of a summer afternoon, and tree frogs singing at night. The quality of the sounds in your environment impacts you. With over half the world living in a city environment, Many of us are immersed in a soundscape of traffic, construction, conversation, and street noise. Through the wonders of technology, people now tune out the environmental soundscape by tuning into their devices, immersing themselves in a digital soundscape of podcasts, audible books, news, music, and more. When it's time to relax, choose your sound wisely. I'm Allison Ayati, and I want to help you quiet your mind through soothing sounds, to relax and restore you, go to livingthesoundlife.com. The Sound Life is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Breakfast. It's the most controversial meal of the day. Some say it's the most important, and some say you should skip it. Here's the thing. By definition, everybody has breakfast. It's simply the first time you eat on any given day. Expanding how you think about breakfast is key to making healthier food choices, no matter what time of day you have your first meal. In America, we're inundated with marketing from an entire subset of the food industry about breakfast foods. They're mostly processed and carb-laden, but even natural choices go heavy on fruit, light on veggies, and rarely get past a protein choice of eggs or pork. Now, while I appreciate that some people may not want to tackle a mackerel first thing in the morning, there's no reason that foods we consider to be lunch or dinner foods can't also be breakfast foods. So here's my challenge to you. This week, add some veggies to your first meal of the day and try a protein that you consider to be for dinner at breakfast time. By reducing carbs in your first meal, many people find that that meal tides them over longer. And adding veggies into breakfast is a great way to get in more of the good stuff. I'm Julie Sloan, certified health and wellness coach with Well and Grounded Lifestyle Healing. I help people transform their relationship with food and health through a 90-day challenge where we focus on mindset, nutrition, and food psychology. Get tips and find out more at wellandgrounded.com. Do you believe that there can be a silver lining from tragedy and that blessings come in disguise? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Your attitude determines how you view a situation and how you move through it. A tragedy is defined as an event causing great suffering, destruction, and distress. We understand the meaning of those words. However, I believe the important component is how we view the situation. What may be a tragedy to one person is nothing more than a bump in the road to another. And while we can agree that events such as death, divorce, or job loss create less than desirable circumstances, each can be viewed and handled differently from one person to the next. The key is that person's outlook. There are people who see the glass half full in all situations and others who see it as half empty. We have a choice about how we view what occurs in our life, and that choice determines how we will transition through a tragic experience. So how can you get through a tragedy? Recognize that you have a choice in the situation. We often believe that we are a victim of circumstance and that this will be our lot in life. We think that we will never recover. The key to moving on is to know that you have the power to change the situation. No matter how devastating the circumstance, you have the power to get through it. You are not a victim. The choice is yours. Never suppress your feelings. Hurt, sadness, and grief are all normal emotions and they should be felt. The problem occurs when you allow yourself to stay stuck, when you assume the role of victim. Get help if you cannot do it by yourself. 
read books, and seek information that can help you get your head in the game. Reach out to friends and loved ones. Isolation can make the situation worse. And seek professional assistance if you're overwhelmed, depressed, or have suicidal thoughts. Remember, you're not alone, and you have a choice. How we experience our life comes from how we view what we experience. As Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. Thanks for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. From the studios of AM 970, The Answer, on Broadway and Wall Street in Manhattan, this is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. The term empath can be used to describe a person who experiences a great deal of empathy, often to the point of taking on the pain of others. These highly sensitive people give too much at their own expense. According to today's guest, Dr. Judith Orloff, it's important for empaths to incorporate daily self-care practices that protect them from the stresses of an overwhelming world. She's here today to discuss tools that empaths can employ to stay healthy and happy. Dr. Orloff is a psychiatrist and a member of the UCLA Psychiatric Clinical Faculty. She's a New York Times bestselling author whose book is Thriving as an Empath, 365 Days of Self-Care for Sensitive People. Welcome, Dr. Orloff. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you. It's great to be on your show. So, Dr. Orloff, I love when you come on our show because I always enjoy our conversations because I'm an empath, and I learned so much from you, and your strategies always help me manage my life. So for listeners that may not be familiar with the term, what is an empath, and how can someone tell if he or she fits the profile? An empath is somebody who is very sensitive and intuitive and open, but doesn't have the same filters that other people have. So we tend to feel things uh, more strongly than others. And we have big hearts, but we tend to also take on the stress of the world and the stress of others and tend to be over-helpers or over-givers, so we risk sensory overload and exhaustion. So as a psychiatrist and an empath, I know how important self-care is to be able to stay centered, to not absorb other people's energy, to be able to not over-give and learn how to set boundaries. So all of those are skills empaths learn. And when I apply these skills to my life, the, cha- the challenges of being an empath are lessened and the gifts are just amplified. You have an empath self-assessment test on your website, drjudithorloff.com. And out of the 20 questions, I have 18 yeses and one that could go either way. So I'm a full-blown empath. And that's really no surprise for me. As I said, I, I believe that I am. And I often wonder, is being an empath a superpower or is it a super stressor? Oh, it's both. Uh, if you have self-care tools, though, it's a superpower. And it's a power that you enjoy. It brings you depth. It brings you compassion and love and relationships and connection to nature. If you if you like connection to people and to nature, being an empath is the way to go. It's you know if you have you know that neurological makeup, it allows you to really love people and to really connect to life, to people. It's just a, a beautiful depth that you have if you're an empath. And it's only a stressor if you don't learn the self-care techniques because then you're wide open to stresses. If you meet an energy vampire, let's say, you have no strategies to use. You know, if you have a complainer or a drama queen or a chronic talker, you just get mowed over by them. And so what I wanted to offer in this book is what do you do if you encounter a chronic talker? Here is what you do. So you have a plan. And then that, if you have a lot of different plans for different problem areas, then you're empowered because you know how to deal with it. Doctor, what is actually happening in the brain when a person is an empath? Well, it's thought that the mirror neuron system, the compassion neurons in the brain are hyperactive, meaning they're really working overtime where you feel compassion for everyone and everything and they don't shut off. 
Um, and so that can be a problem unless you learn how to work with that. But compassion is the, the main quality that empaths have. They have extreme amount of compassion. Are empaths sometimes diagnosed with personality disorders or things like ADHD, anxiety, depression? Empaths are diagnosed with everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and my big gripe with the medical profession is that they don't know how to diagnose empaths. If you are an empath, that changes everything. Right. Because whatever diagnosis you are given, let's say you have chronic fatigue, let's say you have ADD, um, whatever diagnosis you have, it's going to be colored by being an empath. And so by learning how to maximize your empathic skills and deal with the challenges, sometimes the other illnesses disappear or sometimes they just lessen. But if you're an empath, let's say with a very real physical disease going on, if you're not practicing self-care, that disease will be much more challenging. And if we're not practicing the self-care that you teach, then we can end up getting over-medicated or medicated unnecessarily. Exactly. And that happens all the time where empaths get medicated with antidepressants, anti-anxiety, um, this medicine, that medicine. And that's not usually the first line of treatment for empaths. The first line of treatment is, number one, you diagnose an empath. Number two, you take a history and develop you know, a plan for which areas are your problem areas, which areas are you being drained, which areas are you being stressed and challenged. Do you take on the stress and emotions from other people? All right, the plan is if I work with somebody, it's how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? If you are an overgiver, if you take on the emotions of other people, how can you regulate that, that empowerment and self-regulation? It's really incredible for empaths. If a person realizes that he or she is an empath and they're exhibiting some of the types of of symptoms that we've talked about, how can that person get the proper diagnosis? Are there doctors and therapists out there that even recognize this? Where can they go? Um, Well, you know, the, the integrative medicine doctors and the functional medicine doctors are more apt to understand this. And I'm certainly, you know, doing an educational you know, training for healthcare practitioners. And it's ever so helpful to have a community because many empaths feel isolated, alone, misunderstood. And particularly their nurses, their doctors, psychologists, they're on their own. They don't have a supportive collegial uh, system. And so when you learn, you know, how to find your system and your network, it makes a huge difference. Understanding what we're experiencing is the first step. It's really up to us to watch what's going on within us. So how can a person, therefore, learn to spot the first signs of sensory overload? Um, Well, what I would do is go through thriving as an empath. It starts with January 1st, and it ends with December 31st. And there's a a, each day is devoted to a different self-care technique, and one of them is spotting sensory overload where you notice in your body the signs where lights are too bright, people seem too loud and too much is coming at you too fast, you might have various symptoms, you might feel tired, you might get irritable. Now you have to notice, you know, you how do you feel baseline and then how do you feel when you start to get the first signs of sensory overload? And I've trained my body you know, in my, my mind to, to notice this so I can nip it in the bud because I it's very painful to go on sensory overload. And I, I sometimes do when I'm in airports. You know, if I'm stuck somewhere and the plane is late, that's my most vulnerable place because I can't get out and I'm waiting for a plane and it's chaos and it's noisy and there's no escape. And so that's very difficult for me. And so I'll go off into a corner, I'll meditate, I'll go into the bathroom, I'll listen to some music, and try and calm it all down. So, Doctor, would you share one or two of your daily self-care practices with our listeners? Yes. uh, Learning how to set clear boundaries is very important for empaths. Um, Learning how to say no, that no is a complete sentence. Learning how to say no. Empaths often wear an invisible sign around them that says, I can help you. And so people flock from far and wide to tell you their problems. I don't know if that happens to you, Joan, but it happens to a lot of empaths. Yes, it does. 
Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you have to give yourself permission to say no. You know, I'm not available. Empaths have to learn how to be not available at times. So if somebody comes up to me, let's say, at an airport and, you know, starts talking and then starts telling me their problems, I could sense it rearing up, you know. And so I just say to them, you know, thank you for, you know, saying hi. I'm, you know, having a quiet time now, so I prefer not talking. This is my downtime. And I'll, I'll stop it. You know, I won't just listen to a stranger telling me their life story and all the trials and tribulations that they're going through because it's not healthy for me. I want to pick and choose the people who I listen to, you know, because listening is a great gift. When you sit there and hold space, there's a technique in thriving as an empath called holding space, where you practice sitting with somebody being in a heart space, being in a loving space, but not trying to fix anything for them. Just holding a space as they're talking to you. And that's very different than what most empaths do, where they try and get in, well, have you tried this? What about this? Go to this healer. I have a phone number for you. You know, all of that. You don't, You just want to hold the space. You don't want to do anything except send loving energy. And that's a skill to learn. And as a psychiatrist, certainly it's the way I function or I hold space for people, and I help them activate the healer inside of themselves, which is very different than trying to fix them. And empaths often get caught up in trying to fix that people, especially their loved ones who are experiencing suffering. You know, so that holding space for someone is one technique in thriving as an empath. Setting boundaries is another technique. Um, another technique is asking yourself, is this emotion mine or another's? Now, how do you know if you're feeling anxious, if it's yours or somebody else's, if you're an emotional sponge? Because emotional sponge will soak up other people's feelings as well. And so there's a technique on learning how to differentiate other people's emotions from yours, which is a key technique for empaths. And also, you know, in the beginning, I have a, a day devoted to I am not too sensitive and meditating on the gift of sensitivity rather than buying into all the shaming messages that you might have gotten from parents, from teachers, from society. Oh, you're too sensitive. You need to toughen up. Now, that's what my mother used to tell me, you know, where I would come back from shopping malls and crowded places and just exhausted or just not feeling that great. And she would say, oh, dear, you just have to toughen up. You need a thicker skin. And that isn't the solution. You know, it's just well-meaning parents who didn't know better often say things like that, you know, especially in those days. And still, but to know that those shaming messages aren't true, that you don't need to toughen up, but you do need to learn self-care techniques so that you don't suffer by taking on all the different emotions and stresses of the world. And doctor, when you're creating these changes in your life and you're implementing the practices that you prescribe for us, doesn't it also create new pathways in the brain? Doesn't it cause the brain to react differently? Oh, definitely. I mean, just the simple self-care practice of learning to turn off your stress hormones and turn on your endorphins via your thoughts, you know, that's an amazing exercise and it creates new pathways in the brain. Because if you're having a lot of negative thoughts and you worry a lot, that's creating a cascade of stress hormones, cortisol, and adrenaline in your system. And what that does is put you on sensory overload. That's the fight or flight hormone. So, you know, that will put you, you know, into a panic. And so if you're able to say, um, thank you for sharing, but I'm not going to be obsessing about the same fear a hundred times and I'm going to be thinking a more positive thought, or meditating, that creates endorphins. And the endorphins are the blissful neurochemicals in the body that you want in your body. You get them through exercise, you get them through laughter, you get them through meditation, and then you start feeling blissful and calm. And so just by that simple self-care technique that you can read over and over again in the book and just master it, um, you have the power to change your biochemistry and your body, which for an empath is a godsend. 
And doctor, we're talking about empaths, but these practices can be implemented by anyone. Everyone can benefit from them. Everyone can benefit from them, um, definitely. Um, learning how to work with these. There's just some of the practices strike more home you know, for empaths because it's just part of, empaths are very similar. And we encounter a lot of issues that are the same. And so we, we have a deep capacity for understanding each other and what we're going through. And so just some basic skills, you know, can make a huge difference in the quality of your life. And yes, everyone can benefit from the, from these techniques. And what I, you know, I've just been on a book tour and what I've seen, you know, where parents are reading the book to their empath children. And they're having like family circles around the book. And I love that because parenting is so important in supporting these empathic abilities in a child. And when a child doesn't even know what's happening, learning, you know, how, how to deal with, you know, your great empathy and your great compassion and not overgive or be overwhelmed all the time. It's just, it's just made my heart so happy to see this. The book is Thriving as an Empath, 365 Days of Self-Care for Sensitive People. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Orloff and her work, you can visit drjudithorloff.com. That's D-R, drjudithorloff.com. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Doctor, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, I'd like every sensitive person out there to celebrate your abilities, to commit to learning self-care techniques so you can just thrive as an empath and enjoy being sensitive and enjoy being giving and loving and connecting to nature and the universe. Now, have it be, you know, a gift in your life and you know, put in the effort and the discipline to learn the self-care so that your quality of life can improve. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us and for providing tools that can help us manage sensory overload. We have so much stimulation coming at us on a daily basis and practicing self-care and following your advice can help us thrive. So thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. We'll be right back. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. If you want to stand out as a great guest who is remembered, celebrated, and gets invited back, you need to give the host and listeners what they want while communicating with confidence and charisma. Hi, this is Joan Herman. After years on air, I can tell within minutes if a conversation will be stimulating or not. Being prepared with a compelling message makes all the difference. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make the most of any media appearance. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more, visit joanherman.com slash media training. That's joanherman.com slash media training. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog, shopping for a gift for a French child, when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boys spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, but on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole, an oval in a circle, a square in a triangle, a rectangle in a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? In most situations when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed, then blame. Someone must be at fault, 
Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame? Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work, no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with the circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful, thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit, no matter how hard we try to squeeze it together and how much we want it. Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital articles, check out our team and book club, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow us on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.